All right, well, good morning again, and um, today we're going to pick up our study in Acts in chapter 10. Um, and this week, the title of the message is Rise, Kill, and Eat. And with it being um, an hour earlier than it normally is, I don't know if your stomach's growling like mine is, <laughs> just because of the time of day, uh, but I think this message might be timely for that. Uh, last time we saw a 180 in Paul's life, or Saul's life, he hasn't been called Paul yet, I keep calling him that, uh, but we saw a persecution of the church turned into peace, we saw a paralytic uh, be healed, uh, we saw prayer brought a woman back to life, and he, Peter presented her alive. Uh, but this time we're going to look at a devout soldier, more angels and more visions. We've been seeing a lot of angels in the book of Acts, and a lot of visions, and it's uh, interesting that God was, that's how God was getting his work done. Uh, in these days, I wouldn't be surprised if, if in these last days we were to see an angel or get a vision from the Lord um, uh, on orders and on things to do, not to be super mystical or again like that big gold angel on top of that church uh, nearby, uh, but that man, sometimes God has to drive his message home and sometimes he does it in the manner of visions. I've known many uh, people who have had uh, visions from the Lord of stuff that God wants to do in them. Um, and I think it's important that we pay attention to them. You know, sometimes we got to write it off as, yeah, that was the pizza we had. Or um, I don't know if the mayo was bad on my sandwich, but sometimes God will give you um, a vision and be very clear about these things. Um, but also we're going to see uh, orders given, uh, lunch, and then we're going to talk about being cleansed and devotion. Uh, but before we start today, just a couple of questions really for us, really. What is our passion or what's your passion? And who are you or what are you really devoted to? What is the prime devotion of our lives? And do we have a standard in our life? Something that we live up to. You know, in the auto industry, they talk about benchmarks or in the tech industry or a lot of these industries, there's always a car that, you know, when they make a new car, they're trying to catch up with their competition or they're trying to beat um, where they have a standard or a benchmark. Um, but do we have something in our life like that that we live up to? Um, and along with that, is there a quality of life, maybe more practically, that we're used to, a standard of life that we're, li we're living? You know, uh, Ash and I have kids now, and we were talking the other night about how when we were young, we were growing up, and um, uh, I think we were, maybe we were talking about with you, Larry, my mind is such a blur, but when we grew up and we had the nice neighborhoods to play in, we played in the woods, and there was this standard of living that we were used to, and um, a lot of times it's very different, or a lot of times we strive to give that for our kids. I remember my... Uh, you know, my parents grew up in the city. I think my mom in Long Island and my dad in New York. But he was always glad to give us a life that he didn't have growing up. You know, have the toys, have the freedom, have the house. Um, you know, that's something that they always wanted to, to beat the standard that they had um, growing up. Uh, or maybe it's even just a standard of living. You know, you're used to having uh, the brand new Lexus with the rims. And maybe you can afford that. And I don't know. And that's fine. But maybe there's a standard of living that we want to keep up. Uh, maybe that's a, a, a cultural thing. But what are we willing to do to keep it? You know, what are we willing to sacrifice to keep these standards in our lives? Um, and I say, and I think that maybe the Lord would say to us that our devotion to God should be our standard in life. Nothing else in life should trump our devotion to God. If our devotion to God means that God's going to bless us and bring a lot of things in our life, like Abraham and like um, some of the guys we're going to see today who are very wealthy but are very devoted to God, then great. But if our devotion to God means that, man, we're going to lose a lot of things, a lot of hard times are going to come our way, um, we need to be willing to, to continue that devotion to the Lord. And I say that we need to do whatever it takes to maintain 
that standard of living. You know, there's times in my life when I'll sort of get a check in my heart or the Lord will begin to check me and realize, man, the standard of, my standard of living is fine around me, but my standard of living in my heart is not where it should be. That I can think back and remember, man, I used to be more devoted to the Lord. Or, man, Lord, this wasn't in between us before. What happened? And I think it's healthy that we check ourselves from time to time and realize, man, yeah, maybe my standard of living around me is fine, but is my standard of living towards the Lord? Okay, you know, Jesus promised that we'd have life and life abundant, and is our standard of spiritual life up to where it should be? And I'm not saying that, you know, to beat yourself up, well, I haven't been praying enough or I've been reading enough. You know, if we're all honest, none of us pray enough. None of us read enough. I don't think if we prayed 24 hours a day and read the Bible 24 hours a day for the rest of our lives, it would ever be enough. You know, all of eternity is not going to be able to contain enough devotion to the Lord. But the point is what I'm saying is that, man, are we growing in our relationship with the Lord? Is our devotion to the Lord staying prime in our lives? And a verse real quick before we get into our study, 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. Uh, it's one of my favorite verses for who knows why. But you, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. In 2 Timothy 2, 3-4, through 4, that man, the, the walk with Jesus is being a good soldier. You know, we see Paul using these things, running a race, running a marathon, being a soldier, um, in Timothy, he talks about that, and I think sometimes we miss that as Christians, at least in America, that Christianity is about having a standard of living, uh, a nice standard of living. Not that none of us really don't have a nice standard of living. We have a very nice standard of living um, where we already talking about the other night. You know, it was so quiet here on Halloween, and I was used to it not being <laughs> quiet. Um, but, man, really, I think sometimes we lose focus of what um, a devoted life to God may mean for us. But, Lord, we ask that this morning you would, God, you're so devoted to us. You're so in love with us. God, would you help us just reflect that back on you? And Lord, would you take anything that we've been living for and living up for and sacrificing for that's not you directly, God, and just lay that aside. And, and God, we ask that, Lord, this message, it would bless you and it would bless us, but that, God, if we need to walk away here broken, that's good. Because, I, uh, Lord, like we were talking the other week, better that we be broken now. And, God, will we receive, uh, God, what you would have for us rather than trying to muster up some standard of living for ourselves. God, we love you. You're our life. And we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read uh, the first eight verses here together in Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> Verse 1. Uh, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. And we're going to stop right there. Uh, again, we see Caesarea. It's this coastal city. It's the city that Philip ended up going to a few chapters ago. Um, uh, you know, a decent city. It's a city that still exists to this day. 
Um, the name Caesarea, obviously, it comes from Caesar, Caesar City. Rome has some serious influence over here by this time. Um, but this guy, Cornelius, um, great name. Again, we see some interesting names. We saw Dorcas the other week, and now we see Cornelius. I don't know if you know Cornelius growing up, but I didn't. Uh, but he was a centurion. And what was a centurion? Well, um, a centurion was a group of Roman soldiers originally started out around, as around 100 um, but it was part of a, Ro a Roman regiment. Uh, it was a tenth part of a legion, which was about 500 men, was a Roman regiment. And a centurion was rather, he was a leader of soldiers. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit about centurions just to give us some context and some insight into who this guy was. You know, we see the church on earth and we see that these people are real people and God uses them. And I think sometimes we think centurion and Roman regiment, you know, what are these words? What are these things? And um, I think it helps to put it into perspective. Uh, but I got this off the internet and it says most centurions commanded groups of centuries of around 80 men, but senior centurions commanded cohorts or that's really a term for a regiment. And in fact, if you read here in the Bible, that's the word that's used there. Um, but they took senior staff roles in their legions. Centurions were also found in the Roman Navy. Their symbol of office was the vine staff with which they disciplined even Roman citizens protected from other forms of beating by portion laws. So these guys were Roman officers. Uh, they had power, but they even had this uh, social power where they could uh, discipline Roman citizens who might otherwise be free uh, from receiving beatings. If we uh, look further in the book of Acts, when Paul is arrested by the Romans and they go to beat him, uh, he says, wait, stop, I'm a Roman citizen. You're not allowed to do this to me. So they have to stop. So there was these Roman laws that you, if you're a Roman citizen, um, you wouldn't be uh, disciplined in the same way that someone who wasn't. It's sort of like an American citizen. You have the rights of the Constitution, but if you're not an American citizen, you don't really fall under those rights. But in the Roman infantry, centurions literally commanded uh, a century. They could contain 200 to 1,000 men. Uh, later, generals and Caesars further manipulated these numbers with double and half-strength units. Uh, Julius Caesar, for instance, made the first century double strength. So these were groups of men. They were uh, powerful units in the army. Uh, they these guys received a much higher rate of pay than the average uh, army guy or the average army, say, like captain, uh, twice as much or more, possibly as much as 17 times as much as a legionary soldier. Um, and often veteran soldiers worked um, in the house of these guys uh, who are centurions. So, you know, you're in the military with this guy, you get out of the military, you're an older guy, you begin to work for him on his personal staff. Um, but these guys could be very rich, 17 times as much pay. That's a lot of money. Uh, it talks later, I'm going to uh, cut it short, but through the different eras, they began to rise in power to eventually hold not quite political office, but they would hold more and more um, larger groups of soldiers. They would begin to command larger areas of territory. And we think, I think at least, it's very similar to a modern day general where we have different star levels in general. You hear about these generals on TV who begin to move into roles such as uh, General Petraeus, who was in the CIA for a while. Um, but they begin to, to grow and there's different levels and they, they have a high clout and a high power and they get paid very well and they hold different positions in the government, uh, even to the fact where there's generals and admirals who oversee entire branches of the military. But we think of this guy, this centurion, this Cornelius man, was obviously wealthy. He had people who worked in his house. He was a centurion. He had been there for a while. He had devout soldiers that were with him. Um, and I think it's great that we see that this guy who was very powerful was also very devout. We don't see that a lot in this day and age. A lot of times, you know, there's three downfalls for men. It's, it's uh, women in the sense of this lustful 
uh, passion that men have, it's power and it's pride. And these things are very easy for a man uh, to fall with. And not that a woman can't, but these are prime, you know, primarily things that uh, attack men. Um, and we don't often see people who are super godly who are in super powerful positions. And so I think it's very great that we see not only is this man very powerful in the army and very powerful in the region, but he's very devout and in a sense very humble. Um, this word devout is pious or dutiful. It means godly, that this man was godly. And we think, oh, okay, godly, you know, in our day and age, we're kind of used to it. But he was godly in the sense of the Jewish God, in the sense of the God of the Bible, not the sense of the Roman gods. We think that, you know, there were so many Roman gods throughout the day. They worshiped so many different things. And yet this man is a powerful man in the Roman uh, empire, and he was devout to the Jewish God. You know, and a lot of times I think we do see soldiers coming to faith. Sometimes it's superficially. I mean, you're on the battlefield. You're going to come to some sort of faith. Uh, there's a saying there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole, that when you're in a hole and there's bullets whizzing by, you're most likely going to pray out to some God. But uh, sometimes we do see them who do have a lot of great faith. I think of a man like my uncle who's a believer, who was a Marine in the 80s and 90s. Uh, he was a captain. He was injured, so he left the Marines. He had a motorcycle accident. And after a while... Sometime after September 11th, he felt like God was calling him to go back into the military. And he's an older man. He's uh, in his 50s now, I think, maybe even older. But he's done several tours over in the Middle East since then. And it's not something that he had to do. He felt like God was calling him to go back into the, the military. And I think that that's um, very honorable. But it says that this man, Cornelius, with all of his house. Um, so it's not just all my house where I have my wife and my kids or um, but this guy had a house. He was a powerful man, a rich man, a wealthy man in politics over the region. And so he had servants and he had soldiers, as we see here in these verses. But his whole house became devoted, became devoted. Maybe, maybe, they, maybe they were devoted in the sense where he was, where they came to faith in the Jewish God. Or maybe they just saw how devoted and how real that this man was and how powerful he was, and yet how respectful he was. And so they were respectful uh, to his God. We think of maybe if you ever had a Christian employer who's sincerely, legitimately a Christian, and man, you just you want to be nice to them, you want to take care of them, you feel bad when you do them wrong, and it's honorable when they do their business. Uh, but they were devoted to the Jewish God again, the the true and living God, um, and that's amazing in their day and age. And I would think that would be amazing in our day and age to find someone that powerful in our government who would be truly devoted to God and not devoted to uh, politically correctness or other things. Um, but we see God bringing up a lot of soldiers in the Bible. Um, you know, Joshua was a soldier. David was a soldier. These centurions and more. You know, these soldiers, I think, have a special place in God's heart. Not that God is a war hawk and loves going out and loves war and, you know, does these things. But, but God himself, Jesus himself, is a commander of God's armies. God is coming back to fight a war. It's going to be a quick war. Um, and not that God loves war for war's sake, but he understands that war is necessary. In fact, we are in the middle of a spiritual war. The Bible is very clear about that, that again, we are soldiers in Jesus Christ, that we are not in this um, lush garden of Eden anymore. We are in the middle of a spiritual war. And there are those who uh, spiritually would want to uh, keep us from heaven. But Jesus himself, again, is the commander of God's armies. And I think that there's a certain dignity, power, and authority and honorability and being a good soldier. And I think that Jesus um, loves pointing that out uh, in the Bible. We see in Revelation 19, uh, through 21, uh, and John the Apostle says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, 
and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, with that, uh, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of, God, of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he goes on to say um, uh, more, about, more about that. But we see, man, this awesome picture of Jesus. You know, the first time he came as a lamb, but when he comes back, he's come back as a lion. You know, he came, he said, I came not to judge the first time. But when he comes back, he's coming with the wrath of God. Not that, you know, that I think that's why the tribulation happens before this time, because God does not want to come back in wrath to anyone. He wants to give everyone the greatest chance possible before he has to. But at some point, because he is God, he says that he judged righteously. He's coming back and we're coming with him on those horses. But if we, as we read the scripture, we see that the battle doesn't last long, that all the armies of the earth and the Antichrist come against him and, and he wipes them out very quickly. But I think that, that there's a special part of God that is a warrior and we can find comfort in that, that man, as, as tough as things are, we can think that God is coming back one day and that the enemies of this world are going to be defeated. Um, in which sense, we don't need to raise arms. We don't need to fight with weapons to bring Christianity on earth. We need to fight with our spiritual weapons through prayer and the Bible and faith. But how does this guy's devotion play out? How does this man's devotion play out? You know, it's very easy to say, oh, he's a godly man or he's a devoted man. But we see it practically playing out in his life. And that means that his family and his co-workers and even his servants came to know God. Again, I don't know if his whole house was, but it says that his household was devout. You know, they saw the reality of his faith. Maybe they didn't have that personal relationship yet, but they saw it and they respected it. Maybe they went to church with them. If you didn't believe that, um, you know, I remember in New York, there were people that I know that were managers and people all the time would come to work uh, from their work with them to church and they weren't believers. You know, that this man, he took care of his people uh, and he took care of the people in the community. It says that he gave alms, that he was generous with his wealth. And I think he was generous with it because he knew that it came from God. He knew that, yeah, Rome is the one paying my paycheck. Rome is the one who's giving me possibly 17 times much pay per year as these other guys in this big house and the station over here. But man, I know that God has given me that. And we see that, that man, people who are very generous with their wealth, um, in the, in the truest, most devout sense, because a lot of people are generous and they're generous for their own sake. That may, They might get publicity or fame or a pat on the back. But this man, as we'll see in a minute, was truly generous. And what did he also do? He prayed always. That this man, this powerful man of an army, of a trained warrior, a skilled warrior, probably saw a lot of battles, um, prayed always. He was dependent on God. He wasn't dependent on his sword. He had a sword, but his prime devotion was to God. You know, and I think of guys like Daniel. Uh, while Daniel wasn't a warrior, he was always praying no matter what. Or that verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. That this man's was a, a, a life of prayer, was a life of devotion. And it was to God and to his household and to his soldiers and to his country. But despite all this, despite all this awesome devotion to the Lord, despite a genuine faith that this man had in the God of the Bible, he didn't yet know Jesus. He didn't yet know Jesus. And we'll see that that's probably why this vision was happening. That's exactly why this vision was happening. He didn't know Jesus. And it says at around 3 p.m., around the ninth hour, you know, the first hour is 6 o'clock. And so you just add 9 to that and it's 3 o'clock. 
It says there was a, he saw clearly a vision of an angel coming to him. And I like that it says clearly, clearly that it wasn't just late afternoon. It was hot and hazy and he thought he saw an angel. But this man of God, this man of war, very clearly saw an angel coming to him. And I don't know how you hear this angel saying Cornelius. Was it Cornelius? Was it Cornelius, my man? What's going on? Or was it Cornelius in this, you know, soldier to soldier sort of way? Um, and verse 4 says that he was afraid. Again, this master soldier, this leader of hundreds and perhaps even thousands of soldiers was afraid. Was afraid of this angel. And he says to him, what is it, Lord? And he says lowercase. He recognized that this isn't God, that this isn't the one he was praying to. But I think he realized that this was an angel, and that this angel was one of God's messengers. And being one of God's messengers, he's also one of God's warriors. And I think that this man, in effect, saw that this was a warrior of God coming to him. And so he was devoted to God. And even though he was a Roman soldier, he was devoted to God's army. You know, we think of uh, an angel bringing decrees or enforcing laws or fighting enemies. It's the same sort of thing that Cornelius would be doing. He was there for a reason. Not only a military purpose, there probably wasn't a war going on right then, but it was an enforcement. You know, you set up a military base in a foreign land, you're exerting your military power there. And that's what, what he was. He was representative of Roman's armies and Rome and Caesar himself. And I think he recognized that this angel was in the same way uh, as he was to Caesar, this angel was to God. But this angel says to him that your prayers and your alms have come up before God. How cool is that? That this angel comes to this Roman Gentile man and says your prayers... And the things that you're doing in faith, God sees them and God hears them. You know, we don't see that very often. And, you know, in the Bible, we see a lot of times it happens to prophets and things. But this man was none of those. He was a Gentile soldier. Um, you know, God heard this man's prayer and he saw this man's faith. And what that says to me is that this man, even though he yet didn't know Jesus, he was truly seeking God. Uh, you know, although, again, he didn't know Jesus, he was seeking the true and living God. It wasn't like he was just devout to some false god but he was devout and as much as he knew about god and much as he knew about the jewish scriptures and much as he knew about temple as much as he knew about um uh, god he was devout in that um in jeremiah 29 13 through 14a says and you will seek me and find me when you search with me with all your heart and i'll be found by you says the lord jeremiah 29 13 so what is this guy's prayer? What had he been asking? You know, the Bible doesn't say specifically. The Bible doesn't say that this is exactly his prayer. But I would say that if he was devout to the God of the Jews, and he was truly in faith to what the Scripture said, I think he was probably looking for the Messiah. I think he was probably wondering, Lord, when are you going to send the Messiah? God, I need the Messiah. Lord, I need to be dependent on you. I need you to bring this forgiveness, this promise that you have. My faith is in your promise. Because that's what the Jewish faith was all about was not about being committed to the law as they had made it, but about looking forward to the Messiah, the promised one who would be coming. And so what did this angel do? This angel gives him a message. He says, send to Joppa for Simon Peter at Simon the Tanner's house. And what is the thing that this man must do? He will tell you what you must do. Send men to receive orders from God's general Peter. You know, what must you do? It's the same thing like the believer said after they were cut to the heart by Peter's message in chapter 2. What, 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 excuse me, what must we do? And it was to be baptized and to repent of their sins. And that's the message that God wanted to give him. And the angel could have given that message, but God had a greater plan for this man that I'm going to use a little different method. Something because I need to speak to Peter about something and I need to show you something. Um, but Cornelius' soldiers 
and servants, I think, would be really devout to God and to this man. You know, imagine you're in the military or you're a servant in someone's house and your boss comes to you and says, an angel showed up to me in a vision today and wanted me to tell you to go get this man in this town, Joppa. Go to this certain man's house and get this certain man out of there. Again, it's this very clear thing um, going on. You know, he sent them. You know, as a man living under orders, he sent his men under orders. And I read this quote yesterday online. Um, it says, warriors are born from loyalty, a love of neighbor and country, and a desire to protect and safeguard. Their actions are precise, principled, determined, and are committed to act selflessly for the benefit of others. And I think this man was very devoted. He was committed to act selflessly in battle. Obviously, if, if you're a warrior and there's warriors who are devoted to you, I guarantee it's because they've been... Uh, shown themselves as devoted to their men. You know, I've never been in the military, but everything I see online or in movies, it's always the thing when the commander is a very devoted person and I'm willing to lay down his life for them and fight with them, man, they'll go to, they'll go to, that, uh, to the ends of the earth with that leader. And I think that this man was also devoted. Obviously, we see that he was devoted to his family and the people in his household, but also uh, to the poor around him. And why? All because he was devoted to God. Let's go on in verse 9. Uh, the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending uh, to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. And we'll stop there for now. You know, the next day, Peter is also praying. So Cornelius has his vision. And then the following day, Peter goes up on the rooftop. Uh, he's hungry, and uh, he has his vision. Again, uh, the sixth hour, that's noontime. But it says that he became very hungry, and the word there is intensely hungry. Um, I don't know if you guys get intensely hungry sometimes, but at work, we kind of joke about it because uh, some days you'll see people eating lunch at 11 o'clock in the morning. Sometimes it's 2, sometimes it's 3. Um, but, man, we work in food service, so all day long we're talking about food. We're looking at pictures of food. Uh, the first month I was there was very hard to get used to it because all day long you're looking at food. Um, but I think, you know, we don't really work too hard in the physical sense. But if you've ever worked hard outside or you've gone hiking or camping, uh, man, lunchtime is very different. Lunchtime is very different. You get very hungry. Uh, but what's cool, I think, is that God is about to speak to Peter through a practical um, uh, issue here, through the natural issue, through, I would think, even that this hunger, this incredible hunger, he might even be brought on by God himself, that God allows Peter to be super hungry, that God might begin to show him uh, a very deep spiritual truth that he needs to get through to him. And the Lord, man, uh, like we were talking about a few weeks ago, God uses practical things in our lives like that to get our attention. Sometimes things that we might think is everyday, ordinary things like being hungry to really get our attention. Uh, but Peter was a fisherman. I think that's why someone else maybe was making lunch. Maybe it was because it was Simon's house and Simon's wife was making lunch or Simon's servant or someone else in the house is better at making lunch than Peter. It's the same thing, you know, I'll help you make lunch, but you probably don't want me making you lunch because I'm not the best chef uh, in the world. But it says that he falls into a trance, and that's not um, like techno music. It says that he falls into a daydream-like state 
uh, amazement or bewilderment. I don't know if you've ever been half asleep and kind of realize you're falling asleep, maybe taking a nap on the porch or a hammock or on the couch. Um, maybe you realize you're sleeping, maybe you kind of start daydreaming. That's kind of the state he was in. He was kind of hungry, began to lay down for a little bit and fall into a trance. And it says that an object like a, like a great sheet fell down from heaven, came down from heaven with the four corners bound. And it says that it was like a great sheet, that it wasn't a great sheet, that maybe it was, maybe it was a sheet, maybe it wasn't, but it had this sort of uh, heavenly quality to it. Um, and in this sheet, or this object like a great sheet, were all sorts of animals, insects, birds, everything kind of, you know, it says creeping things. That's kind of gross. Um, and Peter says, man, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> no, I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to kill that and eat that. And why is that? Well, there is a Levitical dietary law. Um, and if we look back in Leviticus, we see that God gives them things that they can eat and they can't eat. Uh, we see after the flood, even with Noah, that before the flood, people just ate plants. But after the flood, God said, go ahead, you can eat meat now. Um, but this Levitical dietary law was actually very smart and very wise. Um, it was way before other societies had these things. They had these laws about trash too. put the trash outside the city, burn the trash outside the city. A lot of countries and nations didn't do that. And they had problems with diseases and things. I mean, we even think back to, um, was it the Renaissance era before the Renaissance, the dark ages where we had all these cities and people just pour their trash in the, in the street and they would get sick. And we look at places like India now where they have rats and things that they worship and they get sick because they just allow these animals that they believe to be their ancestors roam around um, or in the rivers as well. Again, this very smart uh, Levitical law. And again, I think that's another proof that God is real and who he says he is because no one else in the world was having these clean laws, and yet the Jewish people have these laws of cleanliness. And just to touch on it real quick, in Leviticus 11, uh, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel. These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals on the earth. Um, uh, whatever divides the hoof, having clothing hooves and chewing the cud, you may eat. Nevertheless, you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves, the camel, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, etc., etc., all these different animals. Uh, but it says that their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you, the scripture says. And I think that it's great. It says unclean to you. You know, God made them. God made all the animals. God said that they were all good at the beginning of creation in Genesis. But at this time, it wasn't a good idea to eat them. Number one, you know, you're on a road trip for 40 years in the wilderness. Carrying along seafood with you, probably not a good idea. And we see even today that you need to be very careful about eating uh, certain certain shellfish and certain oysters and things that they need to be cooked properly. Or we see with pork as well. Pork was outlawed, but we see today that, man, pork flesh is very similar to human flesh in a way, and it carries a lot of diseases. And the things that they eat actually go into their flesh, and so you need to be very careful how you cook it. Not that I'm not a fan of bacon or anything, but I can see why that God came up with this law for them uh, in this day and age not to have it, uh, just on a, even on a practical level. But on a spiritual level, God gave them this law because he wanted them to be separate. He wanted them to be holy. He wanted them to be different than the people that they had around them, uh, that they might be also a spiritual example through this physical law, uh, that they might show their devotion to God by obeying this law to God. Um, but again, this was a different day and age. This was the age of laws. This was before uh, the Messiah came. But verse 13, who is this voice? I believe it's Jesus' voice. Who else would Peter call Lord. After everything we saw Peter and Jesus go through, I don't think Peter is about to call any voice he hears when he's hungry on his rooftop in a trance, Lord. Um, 
You know, uh, Peter is very uh, devout in that way. But Peter says no to God. Peter says, no, Lord. <laughs> if No, Jesus, that's not going to happen. Um, and this doesn't really go over well when we say, uh, when our kids say no to us, right? Oh, really? He said no. <laughs> you know, things just got real now. Um, but Peter, we see here, was devoted to God's law. He had never eaten anything unclean in his entire life. Think about that. Your whole life, I don't know how old Peter is here now, but he never ate anything unclean. He, you know, maybe the rest of the Jewish law he didn't keep. He swore and he did, he tried to cut off the guy's ear and, but he never ate unclean things. And that was very important. And they wouldn't be in a sense defiled and not able to go to temple, not able to have that communion, that fellowship with God. Uh, you know, I haven't watched them, but I've come across different videos on, online of, of people eating fast food for the first time. And like, how on earth did you go your entire life? And they're, you know, they look to be American without ever having a McDonald's cheeseburger. I'm not saying I recommend it, but really, I don't know how they did it. But somehow, maybe I need to watch the video. But I think, you know, something like that, like they've never had food that other people might call unclean. And the voice responds to him, you know, Peter, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And the cleansed is to make clean or cleanse. It can be from physical stains and dirt such as with utensils and food, but it could also be for a leper to cleanse by curing or in a moral sense, the free from guilt or sin or to purify, to consecrate, to dedicate. And also, excuse me, to pronounce clean, like we just talked about in the Levitical sense that these things, Hey, God says they're clean. Now God says I made them. You can eat them for a while. There came the point of the law. Don't eat them. And now God's saying it's okay. You know, these animals, which were once illegal to eat, unclean to eat, have now been made okay to eat. And they now are devoted to the purpose of feeding people. And this word common, it means to make common or to make Levitically unclean, unhallowed, defiled, profane, uh, or to be counted unclean. And what God's saying to Peter is, hey, Peter, I've cleansed these things. The things I've done, you know, he doesn't go this deep and Peter doesn't get it quite yet, we see. But man, I've done something amazing on the cross that I've opened up a very big spiritual truth here that the things that used to be unclean are now clean to you. And, and if, if I've done that work, don't call it unclean. Just like when I said I need to wash your feet and you said, wash my whole body. And I said, no, your feet's enough. Trust me when I say that my work on the cross is enough here. You know, uh, Peter's, you know, if God says it's okay, then you need to do that. Even if you've lived a completely different way your entire life. That Peter, you've been devoted to the Levitical law your whole life. But Jesus is saying something here that, man, there's, there's a greater devotion that needs to happen now because God has done something crazy and amazing on the cross. I think of eating bananas again after I became a Christian. You know, I ate bananas when I was little. I ate peanut butter when I was little, very little. And then I had like a bad experience of the peanut butter got stuck in my mouth and I never wanted to eat it again. And then a few years ago, some friends got me some Reese's Pieces and it's been all over it since then. Or eating bananas in a sense where I just didn't like the consistency of banana. I remember being saved probably... A few months, and, and I'm crazy. The more you know me, ask my wife, I'm crazy. I'm out on the deck of the house where I'm living with a bunch of single guys, and I've got a banana. And I don't remember when it was like a weekend or after work, and I'm just out there and I'm like, I know God made this. I know these are good. A lot of people eat them. I'm just going to force myself to eat it. And I went outside, I like forced myself to eat it. I'm like, the texture is getting me. But after I got through it, I was like, that was pretty good. And, and now I like bananas again. And I think in the same sense that, man, I live my whole life by being devoted to, I'm never touching banana and this is not going to happen for mushrooms. Mushroom is one thing I'm not going to eat. <laughs> but really, I had to force myself because I knew it was good. I knew there was nothing wrong with it. 
And now that I was saved, I knew that I was different. So let me just go for it. But I think it's great that the vision here is about food and that Peter was very hungry when God gave him this vision. And that Peter knew Jesus wasn't talking about food only, but again, he didn't quite get it yet. I think that's a relief. Peter the apostle, Peter the guy that we've seen God do marvelous things through, God gives him a vision and Peter goes, no, I don't really get it. What? I think that's a huge relief. Um, you know, Because when God tells us or shows us, shows us something, it's up to God to make it clear to us. God shows us something. He's not going to have us sit there and try and figure it out on our own. You know, he wants us to seek him for the answer, but it's up to God to reveal the truth to us. You know, we think about parables. In John 16, 25, one of the last things Jesus said to them before the cross was, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father that, man, the time for parables is over. I'm going to use these pictures to tell you the truth. And that uh, whenever Jesus did tell a parable, when he had his disciples with him later, he would uh, clarify the spiritual meaning to his disciples and he wouldn't make it plain to the other people that they might know the truth and be condemned and unbelieving. But the vision and the message are done three times. You know, three in a sense is God's number. Uh, you know, don't put too much stake on that. But we know how stubborn, I mean, devoted Peter could be. What else did Jesus say to Peter three times? John 21, 14 through 17. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? You know, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You know, Peter was devoted. Peter was stubborn. I think those are very two similar qualities. That man, if we're stubborn, that means we can be probably severely devoted um, because we put that same energy and that same trait uh, towards devotion to God. We're going to be stubborn in, in anything that comes against that. Um, but uh, here we see that the object was taken up into heaven again. Man, if I'm Peter and I'm super hungry and God gives me a vision of food and says, get up, Peter, come kill and eat this, where's my lunch going? <laughs> you know, why are you taking this away from me a few times? Um, but ser seriously, Jesus loves using food as an illustration, as a miracle. You know, wine in the Bible, bread in the Bible, manna, the Last Supper, communion. Jesus ate after the resurrection to prove that he was alive to them. Uh, the Levitical laws, the great feast in heaven. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a feast. Maybe the spread of food coming down on this white sheet is part of what we're going to see in, uh, at the buffet in heaven. Maybe not. I'm going to pass the insects over. But really, maybe this is part of the spread up there. Um, you know, you think about these uh, TV shows with the strange food where people go around the world and eat strange food. Uh, no, thank you. Um, I'll stick to my American cuisine. But you think about guys who go on missionary journeys. So one of the things they say is not to refuse the food because these people are offering you something special as a gift and as a guest. And if you turn it away, you might turn away the gospel. So if you're called to be a missionary, you might need to eat monkey brains to reach people. And that's why I'm thankful that we're here in Maryland where the hardest thing to, to eat has been crab so far. <laughs> I've actually stomached it. But man, we sincerely, we've got to put to death our own ideas of what's right and wrong, what's morally acceptable, what even God expects of us, um, and simply believe what God says and what God tells us. When God lowers down that sheet in our lives and says, this is clean, this is dirty, this is clean, this is what I've called cleansed, don't you say anything else about it, we need to simply put aside our mentality and believe him for what he says because he knows better than us. Um, and it says, like we read in, in Revelation, that he judges righteously. And again with that, rise, Peter, kill any. We need to kill our devotion 
to anything other than God. And I say that even if what we're devoted to seems godly, can be, can be rationalized as godly to us or to others. But if God says, that's not for me, that's not for you, or that is for me and that is for you, then we need to be devoted to it. Uh, but let's go on. Verse 17. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision uh, which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had seen, who had been sent, excuse me, from Cornelius, had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he who you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed uh, by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them, excuse me, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. We see here that it says that, that Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. Uh, meant in verse 17 that word wondered it could also be translated doubted it could mean to be entirely at loss to be in perplexity that man i don't get it i get it but i don't get it is that really what god would say to me is that really what's going on here you know he wakes up and goes what does this mean i think it's great in a, in a funny sort of god's sense of humor way he doesn't have a long time to find out you know he has his vision then all of a sudden there's knock knock at the door the doorbell goes off um, and I think that's God's timing. It's sometimes humorous when we look at it from the outside, uh, but it's perfectly on point and on time. It says that these guys stood at the gate to call to whomever was down here in the house. So to give you kind of a picture that there's the house, there's a gate, there's maybe a little bit of a driveway going on and they need to, they're at the gate and they can't get in and they call to who's ever there. Um, but while this is going on, the, the, the spirit spoke to Peter while he thought about this vision. That Peter just didn't wake up and go, that was weird. Let me go downstairs and see if the tacos are ready. He begins to think about it. And I think that this is very important when God begins to, to lay things on our heart, begins to speak to us about things, that we do consider them, that we do think about these verses, messages, or uh, things that we keep hearing over and over. And I think why is because a lot of times God will give us direction in that. As we consider something that we don't understand of God, he'll give us wisdom in it. He'll give us understanding of it. And he says, arise, go with them. And what does he say? Doubting nothing. Doubting nothing. Stop doubting, Peter. Stop doubting. You know what it means, Peter. You know what this vision means. I've given you understanding of this vision. I've told you what to do. Don't doubt it anymore. Don't struggle with it anymore. Put this old devotion down. You know, how often does God give us a word and we doubt it? We can't hardly believe it means what it means, right? You know, it can't be that. God would never ask me to do that. God, no way. God can't use me like that. No way, God wouldn't ask me to give that up or do that. But I think perhaps we doubt it because our devotion is elsewhere. And that's why we doubt, because it means we'd move our devotion someplace else. And I think that that's scary, because it means that we need to start trusting God and not our devotion to something else. He says that I've sent them. You know, it's pretty clear that these Gentile soldiers are here for you, Peter. I've sent them, the Spirit says to him. Think about that. You're hungry, you have a vision, you wake up, and then all of a sudden there's some special forces and government workers at your door asking for you to come with them. I don't know if I'd go with them. You know, is there a problem, officer? Can I help you? 
Um, do you have a warrant? But again, he still kind of doubts. You know, why are you here? You know, sort of seeking confirmation. I don't, I don't think that I would do anything different. God gave me, would give me a vision about something. I might go, well, why are you here? Let me ask you and see if it comes out of your mouth before I put the idea in your head. But they give him the whole story straight up, that this man has a great reputation among all the Jews. And this, again, a Gentile soldier. I don't necessarily think the Jews really appreciated Gentile soldiers in the Holy Land. They were under rule by Caesar. And even though they said, we have no king but Caesar, when they crucified Jesus, I don't think that they were very happy about uh, this occupation. And that's why they wanted the Messiah to come to free them from political occupation. But these guys, uh, these Roman soldiers, seeing a very spiritual, serious spiritual happening here, just like the guys um, who were at the eunuch and the guys who were at Ananias' house. Um, but again, it's another dual vision, just like God gave Saul and Ananias that vision where they met up and Ananias prayed for Saul and Ananias wasn't so sure at the beginning. Um, but really, when God gives you a vision, I think that it means that he's answering both your prayer and someone else's prayer. Um, he's doing something big in someone else's life, and he also wants to do something big in your life. And it's usually behind the scenes, and we need to be obedient to what God tells us to do and what God reveals us to do. Even if it doesn't make any sense, I don't get it. It's a giant sheet with a bunch of alligators and insects on it. I'm not going to eat that. Or, man, there's a vision of something I need to go out and do. But he invites them in. They have some lunch. Uh, I think that's great. Come on in, guys. It's lunchtime. Let's have some lunch. Uh, but it was a 30-mile journey, probably a two-day journey. Uh, but these guys got there pretty fast. Maybe they're on horses. I don't know. Uh, but remember, Cornelius had a vision at 3 o'clock the day before, and they're there at noon the next day. So maybe they rode all night. They knew that this was important, that these guys were so devout to their general that they weren't uh, making frivolous stops at the rest stop. Uh, they were there pretty quickly. But they leave again the next day, and some believers go with Peter. And I love that. You know, the faithfulness of these people to go along with the Apostle Peter, even when they didn't know what was coming. They just knew that there was this general somewhere, this uh, centurion asking for him. And man, I think that means that, that we don't have to be called by name just to go. If someone calls, if God calls someone by name to go start a church, do a missionary work, go evangelizing, do something else, and man, we want to go with them, go with them. Um, I've seen this all the time. Friends of mine start churches and other people want to go with them. I don't necessarily know that they've been called to go with them, but man, if they want to go help support that work, maybe God would do that for a while. Um, and that's fantastic. That's the way it should be, that we need to be devoted to God and to others. Um, and again, I think we just make things very difficult for ourselves. We doubt all the time. I know maybe you guys don't, but I do. And I think maybe it's because, we're, again, we're devoted to something less than we should be, that my devotion is somewhere else. My devotion is having a comfortable lifestyle, or that means I need to pick everything up and move again. Lord, this means I need to lay down my pride and make myself open before somebody. Um, but man, God is really not concerned with what we eat, so to say. Yes, God wants us to be healthy in a sense. Yes, he wants us not to be drunk. But he's not concerned with what we eat to be spiritually clean. Eating something to God, as we see in the scriptures, um, doesn't make us holy or unholy per se. And again, God is concerned with what we wear. Yes, we need to be modest. But we don't need to be assessed over it. We see all sorts of different, you know, quote unquote, Christian uh, franchises that are obsessed over what they wear. You need to wear a bonnet. You need to wear pants. You need to wear this. You need to wear that. You can't wear makeup. Bible doesn't say anything about that. Bible says nothing about your holiness based on what you wear. It does say that, yeah, you do need to be modest and you shouldn't be caught up in, in looking fancy and all these things. But it doesn't say, that, you know, that there's one way to dress to make you holy. And again, what does God really care about? Is it food? 
No, it's if we're devoted to him. It's if we're devoted to him. And the reason why he brings food and other things into the mix is because, um, you know, that sometimes we need to give up our earthly devotions to be devoted to him. Like fasting, we need to eat several times a day, but sometimes it's good to give up a meal here and there and seek the Lord. Why? Because a lot of times God has a, a deeper devotion for us. He, he never wants us to be sold out and settled and devoted for something that's not worth it eternally. He never wants us to live our life in such a way that, man, when we get to eternity, we've missed out on something. And that's why when God challenges our devotions, it's not that he's jealous in a bad sense. It's that he wants us to really spend our life going after what's worth it. And Lord, uh, we thank you for this uh, part of scripture. And we ask that God, you would help us to uh, increase our devotion. That God, if we're devoted to, to something more than you, that we would put it in its rightful place. That Not that we would give up our devotions to anything else, but that God, our devotion to you, uh, Lord, please, Lord, let it be first and foremost. We'd be willing to go anywhere, do anything, and eat almost anything. <laughs> eat anything, Lord, to, uh, uh, to not in a sense, in a fleshly sense, to show our devotion to you, but that, God, we might uh, be devoted to you, and these things wouldn't get in our way of that. And we thank you for that. We pray you would reach uh, people who, God, uh, have been looked over by their church and even by ourselves, that we would lay down what we think is clean and unclean to reach the lost and uh, and not in a sinful way, but God, in a holy way. Uh, thank you for calling us. And we pray you come back soon. And we look forward to seeing you and riding with you on that uh, white horse. In Jesus' name, amen.